When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author David N. Meyer returns to tell Nate about his book, The Bee Gees, The Biography. In this episode, David and Nate discuss the unique career of the Bee Gees, the Gibb family, their early years in Australia, the move to England, their run as a pop art band, and transformation into disco kings, Saturday Night Fever, the first drum loop, and how Barry Gibb invented modern pop. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back David N. Meyer. Today to talk about his book, The Bee Gees, The Biography. David, welcome back. Hi, thank you. It's great to be back. And last time you were here, we were talking about Graham Parsons. And so I always thought it was an odd dichotomy that you are a biographer of Graham Parsons and a biographer of the Bee Gees, but I eventually realized that they're almost perfect opposites. Yes, they are. I I wasn't that interested in the Bee Gees when I started the book, but I found them increasingly fascinating and they are, they are polar opposites. You know, the Bee Gees were driven and determined and came from nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing and supported their families, their mother and father as children singing. All they knew was performing and they were tortured in their ways, but their ways of being tortured were very, very different from Graham's. Absolutely. And, and you know, they had the massive work ethic, which he, for all his gifts, um, and he did work hard in spurts, but they were machines for decades of endlessly productive activity. And also their family is really fascinating because, as you point out in the book, Hugh Gibb was their early manager, and he's he's almost sui generis in, in the realm of – child act manager parents or parent managers because there's no evidence he was ever abusive he didn't really you know he wasn't a classic stage parent and yet he was a irreplaceable part of the bg's ultimate success 
Yeah, but he was a really interesting guy because he seems to be incorrigibly incompetent. He seems to be the original guy who could mess up a baked potato. And yet he managed to get his um, son's music out. He got them gigs all through their adolescent, adolescence and early teen years. And the thing that makes him most anomalous among stage parents is that he was never threatened by their success. He wasn't like, you know, um, Murray Wilson. wasn't like the Beach Boys' fathers, father who thought he was a better songwriter than Brian. He always seemed to be in awe of his son's gifts and only wanted to be supportive of them. And when they moved from him as a manager to Alan Stigwood as a manager, he wasn't threatened. He was resentful. He was very happy to sit back and let them succeed. He's, he's a fascinating character. And Robert Stigwood, not Alan, but yeah. Pardon and, me, Robert Stigwood, thank you. Yeah, and uh, let's talk a little bit about the meaning of the Bee Gees, though, before we talk about the, the rest of the family dynamics. I kind of jumped my, my train by bringing up Hugh, but there's something really fascinating about the Bee Gees. Again, I was not somebody who was a fan of theirs growing up, although, like you say in the book, it was unavoidable. You cannot escape knowing, not just knowing of their songs, but knowing and remembering their melodies. You know, the, just so many hits, of mainly the disco era, but also the pre-disco era. And then I would argue that the era when they were producers, songwriters for other acts like Barbara Streisand and Diana Ross and Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, that they had almost as much cultural impact then as they did in their disco era or, or their British pop era. I think that they, you know, Barry Gibb pretty much laid out the template for post-rock pop of the kind we've seen since then with, you know, Celine Dion and, and Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson at all that entire genre, which is, you know, Adele, the very dominant genre, but pop really hadn't figured out how to get a foothold in the rock world. I mean, somebody like Barbara Streisand became an enormous star through the 60s and 70s doing Broadway show tunes and, you know, Marvin Hamlish songs and never really was comfortable until Barry Gibb gave her a suite of songs that perfectly fit the era. Absolutely. And the thing I think that people... Um don't know is that Barry Gibb wrote 21 purpose-built number ones. Who else can say that? He wrote 21 purpose-built number ones for other artists. And when he wrote for another artist, like when he wrote for Kenny Rogers, when he wrote for Barbara Streisand, they were perfectly attuned to that, to that artist, which also I think prefigures the era we're in now, where the songwriting is on such a level that they can write to an artist's identity. And in the book, I talk about To Love Somebody, which Barry Gibb wrote for Otis Redding when Barry was 21. And everyone in the world has done To Love Somebody. Otis died right before he could record it. He died shortly after Barry wrote it for him. It is the perfect Otis Redding song. And that Barry could write a song that perfect for Otis Redding at 21 um, bespeaks his, his songwriting genius. That he was still doing it when he was 60 is even more astonishing. And yeah, the other thing that I think you do a good job of getting across in the book is that, you know, once you open yourself to the Bee Gees and, and you realize, wow, there's this incredible body of work here. And, you know, the early pre-disco stuff is multiple albums that are all beautifully recorded, lots of well-written songs, meticulously arranged, 
brilliant harmonies, there's always something off. I mean, I invested quite a bit of time into the Bee Gees Odessa album, which is their big concept album. And I, and I ultimately decided, and I think your book really helped me crystallize it, that I was kind of barking up the wrong tree. You're not going to find pet sounds <laughs> or Sergeant Peppers here, <laughs> you know? But if you let the sound watch over you, there's a ton to enjoy, but there's not going to be that kind of profundity or deep message. There's, like you say in the book, there's always something off about their music. Well, the, I, I'll agree with you on some and disagree with others. Um, they are a singles band, period. And their attempts to stretch what they do over an album almost always doesn't work. And, you know, Saturday Night Fever was half the Bee Gees and half other guys. And they were always guys. They grew up in an era in the early 60s where every band you know, prior to the Beatles and the Stones, and then after them, except for the Beatles and the Stones, you had two singles, two decent songs, and crap. That's what comprised a record. And they never put out a record with six great songs on it. Some people will argue for them, but but I think where they are meaningful is that if, especially if you play their pre-disco songs, it's almost unbelievable how much pain, anguish, loneliness, suffering, alienation, self-loathing runs through those songs. The songs that aren't straight up narrative songs are always about loneliness, heartbreak, being unable to do something. And um, one of the best things I ever heard about the, uh, the Bee Gees, which in my book I quoted uh, Bruce Harris, the rock and roll writer, who said the central difficulty in analyzing Bee Gees lyrics is that to understand them, you have to forget the Bee Gees wrote them. <laughs> Absolutely. And, the and, I'm sorry, may I? No, go the, ahead, yeah. The dissonance between the way the Bee Gees looked and dressed, which they just always looked like such unbelievable dorks, the worst rock and roll dressers in history, opposite of Graham, the best dresser, is that these lyrics were filled with so much a poetic pain. And you look at these guys, you'd never believe they could express those things. And they would deny that as well. Like Robin Gibb has a quote that I read in your book, you know, where he says, I can't imagine why anyone would care about my feelings. And yet this is a guy who had so many massive hits about his feelings. No, that he, he, he was writing pop music and he thought his job was to write songs with good hooks that would sell and that what he thought or felt about anything uh, didn't matter. And there's a great corollary story from when Graham was recording um, the International Submarine Band record and they hired a, a well-regarded Nashville session man to play steel guitar. And Graham told him to play what he felt. And that didn't make any sense to him. He didn't get paid to play what he felt. He got paid to play what you told him to feel, to play. And to be told to play what he feel, his feeling was, what I feel is none of your business. Tell me what to play and pay me. And I think Robin, is, I think Robin analogizes that. Yeah, absolutely. And another point you bring out in, in the introduction, as, and the Bee Gees, their early period, you know, partly because they were under Stigwood's management, and he had been part of Brian Epstein's NIMS empire and, and associated with the Beatles, although Stigwood never managed the Beatles because they hated him. But they were knocked early on as Beatles imitators. They were seen as alongside the Moody Blues, sort of the greatest avatars of post-Sergeant Pepper pop that was melodic, beautiful, elaborately produced, 
but kind of light and and you know meringue pie kind of thing big big pie but you bite into it there's not a lot there and and you point out that they're really not imitators at all they never did cover versions on any of their albums and if you start looking for similarities to the beatles it gets harder and harder to find the more closely you examine their work absolutely and it was part of stigwood's genius that he sent out the first Bee Gees um, single to radio stations with no name of the band on it. And I don't remember, and what he'd written on it was the next Beatles. And so Stigwood promoted their similarity to sell, to sell them to record station, to radio stations. But they never sounded like the Beatles. They always sounded like themselves. And they had a very specific... Uh, pop sensibility, and when you go back and play their early records, they only sound like the Bee Gees, and their songs are immediately identifiable. And they they don't fall into bands like the Herman Hermits, you know, who who tried to be Beatle-like with really dumb pop. The Bee Gees were like singing, composing as hard as they could from the times they were seventeen. Absolutely, and they had a whole pre-career in Australia where they. You know, Barry Gibb in particular was writing songs from a very young age, and they were touring and performing in cabaret clubs and nightclubs under Hugh Gibb's management. And he was pushing them towards the older school stuff, the British music hall stuff he had grown up on. And they were not really rockers in any way, shape, or form, although they could occasionally, some of their early stuff, like if you listen to the first album that came out in Australia before the one that's called the Bee Gees' first album that came out in UK and US, you can hear some Buddy Holly impressions, a song or two that sounds a little bit, a little Richard influenced, but it's very unique. And I want to play uh, the one hit single that they had in Australia before they left. This is called Spicks and Specks, 1966. Where is the light that would play in my streets? And where are the friends I could meet? I could meet. And that was the Bee Gees singing Barry Gibbs' Spicks and Specks, which was a hit for them in Australia where they had been really working and trying to break through, trying to have hits. And just as they've already laid the groundwork to go back to England, they grew up in Manchester and immigrated to Australia in the early 60s. Uh, they gave up on Australia and immigrate to England and through a series of pretty lucky breaks end up with Stigwood because they were trying to reach out to Brian Epstein and the Beatles organization. Yeah, it was um, strictly a crapshoot on Hugh's part. He got acetates uh, for Spicks and Specks and just sent it to Stigwood, you know, and it was one of those things. The envelope was on the desk. Somebody opened it. Stigwood played it. Boom. They had a deal the next day. Stigwood heard them. He did not mess around. Yeah. And let's talk about the family dynamic a little bit before we dive into the career. I mean, it's it's three brothers. Barry Gibbs is the oldest. And as you point out, he's the handsome one. He's the genetic lottery winner here. And his two younger brothers who are identical or fraternal twins, um, Robin and and Morris. And I, it's spelled Maurice. I always thought it was Maurice. And, and yeah, me you too. know, growing up, you look at these guys and Barry Gibb was such the king stud in the 70s with the beard and the hair and his little brother Andy looked just like him. And and then you've got Robin and, and Mo who are a whole head shorter and both of them are 
funny looking in their own way. I mean, Robin funny had a looking. massive overbite and, and, you know, Mo goes bald, very young. And it's just very clear that Barry Gibb is the man. And you, you call him the alpha Odysseus centaur of the group. Explain that a little bit. Okay. He was absolutely the alpha. He ran the group with an iron hand. Later in the career, he would not let Robin sing his own songs. You know, Robin would write a song and Barry would take it from him and sing it. And Barry, to me, was always like Odysseus, like Ulysses, because he could always figure out what to do in any situation he was in. He was always cunning. He was always solution-driven. He always came out on top. And he just looks kind of like a centaur, you know, a big horsey-looking guy with that great head of hair and striding around over his little brother's it's both, you know, hilarious and a little tragic at the same time. And uh, I talk about in the book how it's axiomatic that after a certain amount of time, everybody in a band hates everybody else in the band. And it's also axiomatic that nobody can stand to be around their families all the time. And here are these three guys who could not do their best work without each other, including Barry. Their solo records were never as good. They understood they had to be with each other. They were stuck with each other. And they were stuck with Barry telling them what to do, and they were stuck with their families. And it drove them all in their ways crazy. It drove Barry less crazy than the other ones, but it drove them all crazy. Absolutely. And and Robin and, and Mo were quite talented, though. Robin is the lead singer on most of their early hits and has a really unique quavering super vibrato heavy voice and of the solo albums that they did his solo work is pretty much the most interesting i have to say i agree uh sing uh, sing slowly sister is a really amazing record and you never would have thought he could pull it off and they were they were quite talented morris was the Brian Jones of the band in that if he could touch it, he could play it pretty much. And until his drinking incapacitated him, he always played bass and he always played keyboard. And he was very, very good at both. And he was a good guitarist. Uh, he, he was an exceptional musician. And Robin was a great and singular singer. And Maurice was the, or Morris was the peacemaker who was able to work out, you know, be the, the lukewarm water in the middle, as Harry Shearer said, in Spinal Tap between <laughs> <laughs> Barry's fire and, and Robin's ice. But I want to mention their younger brother, Andy, in here as well. He was 12 years younger, so he never got to be part of their early days. And by the time he was at all function, they were big, big stars. And he comes along and carves out i mean he goes out and works on his own with his parents guidance quite a bit before they sort of bring him up into the pros and i don't know that he ever accomplished enough that you need to think of him as a major artist right i do think that andy gibb needs to be acknowledged that he was talented and he worked hard and he he made his mark had some hits he was a huge pop star i mean he was a huge pop star and if I remember right, he was the first artist ever to have his first three singles go to number one. But he was also haunted because every one of those singles was written by Barry, produced by Barry, and Barry gave him the line readings word by word in his headphones. And Robin never really escaped the sense that he was a fraud. I mean, excuse me, Andy never escaped the sense that he was a fraud, that he had his own career and that he could do anything without Barry. 
and he was profoundly self-destructive and got numerous showbiz opportunities that were strictly that, you know, like co-hosting Solid Gold, you know, just straight up pop showbiz gigs. But his love of cocaine was so powerful and his feelings of, you know, his imposter syndrome was so powerful that it kept him from ever having any success after those after those songs. And, and he died young. But, you know, he made a ton of money and he was as famous as he could be. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, when you talk about performers who are successful on this level as, as much as I do on the show, there's always a human cost. I mean, an act this big, somebody almost always dies at way early. And Andy Gibb is the you know canary in the coal mine in the BG story. But let's talk a little bit more about their background coming from Manchester. And one thing, you know, going back and listening to their early stuff, the stuff they recorded in Australia as well as, as their first couple of British albums, it really strikes me that they their Manchester roots really show, and and that. I, if they had been in Manchester in 63, 64, I have no doubt they would have been right up there with the Hollies and Freddie and the Dreamers <laughs> and, and the other, you know, bands that came along right in the wake of the Beatles before the Stones and the London crowd, you know, the R&B crowd struck back. I mean, there's something very early 60s British pop about these guys. Yeah, they, they had that sound and they were also... You know, they were sponges in their way. As you say, the way Hugh brought them up, they had no, absolutely no rock and roll tradition of any kind. They were raised on performing 40s and early 50s pop songs to adults. But I think the other thing that's really telling, especially when you look at their evolution, is that they had absolutely zero exposure to black American music. And, you know, one thing all these early British rock and rollers had in common was how much they loved Chuck Berry. They loved Little Richard. They loved those early uh, black American performers. The Bee Gees had no idea who they were. They had a pop sensibility. They had a white songcraft sensibility. And then when they began to hear rock and roll, you know, um, British uh, chart topping rock and roll, that was their formative influence for their early sounds, right? Their, their, their formative influence was people who had listened to black American music and subsumed it in some way, but they never heard the original thing until much, much later in their careers. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like you say, they are sponges, and they, and they show in the '70s they can very much assimilate the tropes and and really get to the core of American R and B in a way that none of their peers did in the '70s. But it was not part of their initial recipe in the '60s. And their and their first album, uh, the Bee Gees' first album on RSO that Stigwood produced, is very much a 1967 record it's a it's a perfect pop record for 1967 with these weird maudlin tunes and robin's quavering voice with the big beetle style production which was something they didn't have access to in australia they didn't have string sections they didn't have mellotrons but they they go in and they they actually put together a band they had a drummer and a guitarist colin peterson and vince maloney maloney respectively, who are both Australians. And, and for a while, they're a real five-piece band. Well, that's what I think. Um, well, the first thing I was going to say about, you know, the string charts and the Motron and all that is that uh, Barry Gibb hummed every one of those lines. They, they couldn't read music, 
but very, you know, had a beyond perfect pitch. And he hummed all the string lines. He hummed all the Mellotron lines. He hummed all those parts or whistled them or sang them. And then they were transcribed and played to his, um, you know, his, his standards. The thing about the Bee Gees that I never thought for a moment is that they were always a band in their early pop days, as you say, had a drummer and a guitarist. And in their disco days, they had a drummer and guitarist and a keyboard. And those guys played together on five records. And they also played on the road together. So they were a truly cohesive unit. And it's funny how at the time in the disco era, and now looking back, everybody regards their music as in some way fundamentally synthetic. But it's not synthetic at all. It, it was the product of five creative minds and at, at, the, at the top of their game, two genius producers, Arif Martin and Albie Galutin, who, who steered them through these records and who really understood what they were doing. And that's the second era. But let's wrap up the first era before okay, we get please. there. And, and that's the uh, – no, not at all. Um, and that's the split between Robin and Gary and Barry that results in Robin actually leaving the band, going solo. Uh, Robin and Morris do a album together, Cucumber Castle, without Barry, without Robin. And Robin actually has the top ten hit and records a whole second album. And I'm going to play a song that you recommended to me. This is uh, Robin Gibb doing Avalanche from his unreleased second album. Robin Gibbs solo doing Avalanche from his unreleased second album, and I think it's Swing, what is it, Swing Sister, it's three S words, and now I'm blanking on it. But it's it's fascinating stuff, and they are all unsatisfied with how they do on their own. And you make it very clear there's a lot of rock star egotism going on that these three young guys have hit it big. They've suddenly got money. They're in the late 60s scene. There's experimentation with drugs and drinking and partying. There's beautiful women, fast cars, everything that can lead young men astray. And they dive headfirst into all of it and break up. But ultimately, their business sense gets them back together. Yeah, they knew they they had to be together. But for a moment, I just wanted to address Avalanche, which for me – was a song that completely redid my understanding of Robin and of the Bee Gees because the the nakedness of the pain and yearning in that song, I think, is on a, is for once on a par with, for instance, Pet Sounds, that he's just so naked, not singing a pop song, really singing something achingly and true, in a way that you just don't associate with them and you don't associate with them of that era. But if you start really listening to their work, turns out to be more typical than a superficial listen would, would suggest. Yeah, absolutely. And and if anything, it's the lack of balance to that that throws. That's <laughs> so that's so well said. Yeah, is that, that is exactly right. That's hilarious. Yeah, because uh, you know they'll have a variety of songs on the album, but the ones that are in that mode 
you know, I started a joke that started the whole world laughing, that kind of thing. So overwhelm the more their attempts to rock or, or, you know, the more lighthearted stuff that it just ends up very unbalanced. And I highly recommend going through the Bee Gees over in full um, because there's just a lot of ear candy there, a lot of delights. And it, it's just fascinating for, you know, an advanced listener to go through and, and try to evaluate this stuff, you know, how good is it? And it's, there's, there's some fun stuff to engage with, I, I have to say, but even after they come back, they, they get back together, they have hits again, but more so in America than in the UK, the UK, UK pop scene changes big time right around the turn of the decade into the 1970s and they have a couple more albums and basically run out that string and finally it's the legendary Arif Martin Martin who recommends that they kind of pull a David Bowie and start listening to the black R&B and reproduce that on their own yeah he he really wanted them to listen to the what was in the Philly sound you know the producers Gamble and Huff and the things they were turning out um Teddy Pendergrass, MFSB, that very smooth sounding, um, string driven, bass driven, uh, Philly sound that was, you know, particular had a particularly sophisticated sound, and was produced to play at a slight distance. It didn't have that in your face Motown Stax Volt production, but was a little more laid back, and had this, you know, very lush bed underneath the vocals. And with him, they did some of their best work. I, I think Jive Talking is one of the best singles ever recorded. Yeah, it's, it's hard to argue with the success there. And it's the kind of thing that in retrospect seems obvious. Like, of course, Gamble and Huff is the perfect lodestar yeah. for the Bee Gees to follow. I mean, the strings, songs like Me and Mrs. Jones that have this deep emotional undercurrent or backstabbers. Um, but I think there's a reason that somebody like Arif Martin is a legend in the music business because that kind of obvious thing very few people are able to point out and communicate to the principals involved. And man, it did not take Barry Gibb in particular long at all to get the hang of it. And I love the story of Barry Gibbs being influenced by the sound of his car bouncing over a bridge, gave him the rhythm guitar part for Jive Talking. Yeah, I... I um... I went to high school. My, my family lived on that bridge when I went to high school. And you can't get from Miami Beach to Miami without driving over these causeways. And that is the oldest causeway, and the bridge is really noisy. So usually when you hear that sort of story, your first thought is, you know, that sounds good, but of course it's nonsense. He's a musician. It just came to him. But that bridge is so noisy and so rhythmic with the horizontal beams across the metal grate of the very long drawbridge section that it's wholly credible. And one of the things that fascinates me about um, jive talking that I say in the book is that I think, especially for that era, it is an essentially raceless song that I think if you listen to the AWB, you know, the average white band, and I like the average white band, you can tell right away, these are white guys attempting to sound black. And, that does not come across in Jive Talking. And I think if no one had ever heard that song, they might be hard pressed to identify the race of the people playing. And that speaks to Arif Martin's understanding of black music at that time. And it also speaks to Barry Gibbs' understanding of, as you said, how fast he caught on to the kind of arrangements 
that Gamble and Huff and Parallel Producers were doing. And he had that arrangement down and the singing on it for me is neither black nor white. You can't pin it down. Yeah, so it's a really unique thing. And and of course, they go on to have a massive, massive success with white audiences and kind of trigger a rebirth of disco, which was kind of playing out before Staying Alive. But before we get there, I want to you mentioned Albie Galutin and his partner, Carl Richardson, who produced uh, most of the disco stuff. Arif Martin pointed him in that direction, sent him to Miami, but he wasn't there for the full run, whereas Albie Galutin was and stayed with Barry Gibb on into the, you know, the whole Diana Ross Lionel Richie era later on in the 80s. And so talk a little bit about Galutin and, and what he brought to the mix. Well, Eric Martin couldn't keep going with him because they changed labels. And Albie Galutin, who I had uh, never heard of, I'm embarrassed to say, before I wrote the book, and who I had many long conversations with, he's like a zealot in the early days of pop and rock and roll. And you start looking at his credits, and there's just number one after number one after number one, where he was a percussionist, a guitarist, a keyboardist. He somehow was in like every significant moment over a long span of years. And now, you know, he has a a very high position in IT at Sony. He's always been a step ahead of everything. And he was a genius producer. And he and, he and Carl Richardson were that classic uh, producer-engineer combo where they understood each other. They complimented each other. They were willing to argue with each other. They pushed one another's ideas further. And Albie was someone that Barry would listen to. And it's no accident that Barry had his greatest success under someone he would listen to because Barry didn't listen to anybody. But he and Albie had genuine a genuinely collaborative relationship. And he recognized um, Albie's genius. And, you know, the, there's a great quote about Prince from someone in his band. Someone said of Prince, he could play his part and he can come over and play your part. And that was Albie Galutin too. He was a very gifted musician. And he could play for Barry what Albie heard but Barry could just describe something or hum it, and Albie could play what Barry heard for Barry. And that also made them an incredible team. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors and then come back and talk about the incredible success of Stan Law. And I said Stan Alive, but I really meant Saturday Night Fever. That was a, a project I, where they got I, I, I do the same thing all the time. Yeah, Staying Alive is so central to that, but it wasn't actually the first song they wrote. And this is one of the things I learned from this book that, in retrospect, man, is this historically important. That Staying Alive was one of the first pop hit songs to use a drum loop, and they did it with tape, like yeah, the Beatles it, did back in the day. It seems to be the first. I mean, and the other amusing thing about it is they never made a big deal out of it. They never said a word about it. I only learned about it from interviewing Albie and no one had ever written about it before. They were recording in the honky chateau, the Chateau d'Aeroville in the boondocks of Northwestern France, where Elton John recorded honky chateau record and made it famous. And you know, David Bowie has recorded there. Everyone has recorded there. And it was famous for its sound, but also it was a pretty crappy facility. It was a very, very basic facility. But you would take a band there that were hard partiers because there was nothing for them to do except to focus on the music. And the Bee Gees went there because it seemed to be relatively inexpensive and had a, a good room, as they say. 
and their drummer's mother got very, very sick, and he went back to England to be with his mom. And there they were, ready to record Staying Alive with no drummer. And it's a measure of both Albie and Barry's workaholism and their refusal to be daunted by anything, that with Carl Richardson, they conceived the idea of a drum loop. And they recorded one beat of their drummers, and Albie describes it to me as a 30-foot loop of quarter-inch tape uh, running over mic stands, empty tape reels, anything that it could run over without jamming, all the way across the studio, and turning on the main recorder and running this loop under the recorder heads. And they said, uh, and they also credited, they gave a fictitious uh, drummer's name on the album, and the last name was uh, Purdy because they were always admirers of Bernard Pretty Purdy, the great R&B drummer. And Barry says that the band got calls for months from people wanting to hire this drummer because the track has amazing swing, I mean, as you know. And perfect time because it's a loop. And that's, <laughs> you know, right at the same time as Giorgio Moroder is coming out with his hits, disco hits with Donna Summer and inventing Euro Disco. And that metronomic sound becomes something that's enormously influential on the next generation of African American producers and recorders. You know, all the guys in Detroit that created techno music and the guys in Chicago that created house, Marley Morrill, the great hip hop producer, he would talk about listening to records like Giorgio Moroder and Staying Alive and loving the perfect timekeeping. And he was never wanted to work with a live drummer because they could not do that. And so, yeah, that was something that really blew me away reading about it. But let's talk about the context in which Staying Alive was recorded stigwood cuts this deal to do a movie based on a new yorker magazine article that's basically fictionalized like not something you could get away with now but the rock writer nick cone basically written a rewrite of his experience in the early 60s with mods and rockers as if it was you know from the perspective of an italian disco goer in the 70s and it becomes the basis of this legendary movie with john travolta and the Bee Gees add these just absolute classics to the soundtrack and it, it becomes this overwhelming cultural success and and it, of course they never match this level of success again right. but yeah. talk, talk about that a little bit like the okay. phenomenon of stand of saturday Night as Friday. you say nick Cohn invented the story out of the whole cloth but he created as an idea of a disco culture that caught on nationwide stigwood loved it um, Stigwood commissioned the movie, and the Bee Gees were in Arrowville. They were just doing another record. They didn't know anything about Staying Alive, about Saturday Night Fever. The Stigwood shows up. Stigwood has the script. He tells them that he wants songs for this movie. And knowing absolutely nothing about the movie, they had the basic tracks for other cuts, and they adapted those cuts lyrically for the song. I mean, Staying Alive has some truly inexplicable um, lyric lines. Um, what's that line about the New York Times? Uh, you know, the New York Times don't make a man. What does that mean? Why are they citing the New York Times? There's no reason in the movie or the original story or the song to cite the New York Times, but a lot of the Bee Gees lyrics are, you can't hear them anyway. And I think 99% of the people that love Staying Alive and played a million times have no idea that that lyric line says, the New York Times don't make a man. It always puzzled me. Anyway. It's <laughs> they, they, a classic Bee Gees moment right there. Isn't it? Where they're like, they just don't make, 
so many of their lyrics make absolutely no sense. But, you know, John Lennon and Paul McCartney used to hum nonsense syllables. Dylan did the same thing when they had a tune. Dylan would throw anything in that rhymed if it, if it suited the tune. And clearly this was some nonsense line they tossed in or they had some grudge against something written about them in the Times. Who knows? So they, they record this record. And Stigwood contracts other disco artists to be on the album, soundtrack album. And as I say in the book, he contracts the luckiest man in show business, David Zire, who Shire, who is like a fourth tier uh, soundtrack composer, to compose some, the, just the lamest uh, string driven movie soundtrack uh, background music you've ever heard. And I, I say in the book, the music fueled the movie, the, mu- the movie fueled the music, and Staying Alive sold like nothing in history to that time. And except for the David Shire tracks, one of the reasons it sold so well was it was a perfect disco party record, that the tracks changed. It wasn't five BG tracks in a row. It was a, a lot of different sounding artists. And the BG singles were, you know, they stayed in the charts for unimaginable periods of time. And Staying Alive was in the top 200 for like 24 months, right? Something like that. I, the numbers are so overwhelming, I forget them. But they had, if I remember right, three top 10 and three number ones off that record. And, you know, this was an era when you bought a record. You know, you had to commit a conscious act. You had to drive to the record store, take out your wallet, put down the money, pick it up and bring it home. And 25 million people did that. You know, 25 million people downloading a streaming song, that's not such a, an act of intentionality. You know what I mean? That's yeah. just, oh, I like this song, boom, click. But 25 million people went out and bought that record in an era when 25 million isn't just an unimaginable scale of audience. And disco was already a true pop phenomenon. I mean, there had been lots of successful singles, a few successful albums, massively successful. You know, number one hits, platinum albums, discos were planted you know in new york la london paris that was a, a miami it was a big part of metropolitan life and in, in the major urban centers but it hadn't broken through to the midwest for example and suddenly staying alive is so big that you've literally got discos opening up in you know des moines and, and dubuque and and all these places in the middle of nowhere and all these and because the genre had kind of played out on its own you know you've got the second wave of euro disco coming in but the original pioneers of disco i would argue with maybe the exception of chic are kind of past their their prime at this point and you get things like disco duck and kiss going disco and and all this stuff that really adds to the disco sucks backlash that's going to come and, and bite everybody in the ass really hard but it was more than just homophobia and racism and white guys not being comfortable with dancing it was also also a real deluge of unavoidable music that a lot of people really didn't like. Well, you, you touched, I want to speak to one of the, your earlier points and then, and then talk about that, if I may. Um, a great country yeah. piano player, Earl Ball, said to me that the reason that country music and rock and rollers finally got along was that rock and rollers began to take speed and country musicians began to smoke weed. And suddenly they understood one another. And what happened, what Saturday Night Live did was it brought straight, sorry, Saturday Night Fever, it brought straight people into dance music. And dance music 
had been a, a fundamentally, as you say, urban, gay, jet setty kind of thing. But primarily, it was a gay thing. Clubs where you dance to recorded music and not live bands and turning away from rock and roll was a widespread gay phenomenon, and that's what drove it. But then suddenly you have the most macho of macho role models, John Travolta. You know, talk about a big swinger. You know, a guy who could get any girl, there he is, the model for straight guys suddenly, just like Elvis was the model for straight guys, and then Easy Rider suddenly showed straight guys they could have long hair and it was cool. Here comes John Travolta to say, his character says, I am as hetero as it gets and I'm a dancer, deal with it. And suddenly, heterosexuals started dancing a disco. And you know, it's a classic American uh, and why you gotta, well, you gotta pardon, absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 it was it, it was big in the black community, but the black community's never had a problem with dancing. That's right. And and um yes, all, all great American culture comes from you know African American music and gay culture, period. That's it's always the genesis. And as it was with disco. And disco got I mean, it just as you say, it got so insanely big. It was everywhere. And you know, disco's rise was concomitant with the early days of punk. And there was no, I mean, I hated disco music. I hated it with a passion. You know, I was blasting the Ramones and I just thought disco was the, in, the Antichrist incarnate, the worst of the worst of everything. And then slowly, you know, I actually listened to it and got seduced like everybody else because there's so much great music in it. But even as I liked it, I knew that was morally unsound. You know, not just a guilty pleasure, but an immoral pleasure to like that stuff at that time. <laughs> and let's go ahead and hear the famous drum loop from Staying Alive, and we'll continue our discussion. with the famous uh, drum loop. And the Bee Gees kind of get lucky in a way because Stigwood has this disastrous movie production that's as big a disaster as, as Saturday Night Fever was a success. And he also produced Grease around the same time, which is another massive, massive success with John Travolta. But he decides to make a movie version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Bee Gees get sucked into it with Peter Frampton, Aerosmith, this whole crowd of others, and everybody thinks it's going to be a massive hit, and it is anything but. You know, and, and just as an aside, I'll say, which I did not know until I researched the book and further was mind-blowing about Barry. Barry wrote Grease. Barry wrote the song Grease. Yeah, absolutely. And another purpose-built number one for Barry that perfectly suits the material it was intended to be, and is. No, everybody knows. Anyway, yeah, Sergeant Pepper's. And it's is, perfect for Frankie Valley's voice, too. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Perfect for Frankie Valley's voice. Um, you know, Saturday night, uh, excuse me, Sergeant Pepper's, if you're able to sit through it, and I sat all the way through it for the book once, it's, it's pretty much the worst movie ever made. And it's 
ugly, the music's terrible, the performances are all unconvincing, it's humorless, it's, it's just grotesque all the way through. Stigward hired a screenwriter who hadn't written screenplays, he hired a very inexperienced director, he threw in all these rock and rollers who could not act, Aerosmith appears in it, and as Morris says of the production, uh, Morris said, it was the worst of films, it was the best of drugs. And <laughs> everybody on it seemed to have been coked out of their minds. And they did it with a kind of like blithe indifference to what they were actually doing because they just believed they were so big that anything would work. And it's not even good, bad. There is no pleasure in watching this film. It, it's just absolutely horrendous and misguided in every way. Yeah, absolutely. There's no Plan Nine from Outer Space, tongue in cheek, you know, mystery science theater way to enjoy that movie. It is no. unbearably painful. And, and George Martin, the Beatles producer, you know, was involved, and you argue pretty convincingly he made things even worse. Yeah, he he came into it. His rubric coming into it was, well, if you're going to do Beatles songs, I better do it, you know. And Stig would offer him a wheelbarrow full of money, and against his better judgment, he did it. But I think if you play the music, it's pretty clear how much he resented the entire process and resented Stigwood and did his best to undermine every single song that he produced. And yet, because that movie is such a colossal disaster and has nothing to do with disco, <laughs> it kind of helped the Bee Gees avoid some of the disco backlash. And, and they put out their follow-up album, Spirits Having Flown in 79, which is before the Disco Sucks riots, and do an incredibly massive and incredibly massively successful tour. Yeah, they... You know, they were the lightning rod for much of the the, uh, the disco backlash. And as always, the things that they wore on stage at the height of disco were so horrible. The way they dressed was so horrible. But if you watch their live shows, they deliver. And there is not a note that's on tape in those shows. They had a great live band and... Disco is not easy to play live well. You need a great drummer. You need a, a great bass player. And they did it. And, they're, they're, and they sang those very difficult songs live. They were always extraordinary singers. And like I said, they were singing in the gutter for nickels when they were 10, 13. And talk about guys who understood that the show always had to go on and you always had to deliver 100% every night. You go on YouTube and watch them in the disco era, you can't find a weak song. You can't find an uncommitted moment. I always say it's not the Bee Gees' fault that they always appear to be entirely bogus and plastic. It's just who they are. They can't help it. <laughs> they're genuinely phony. It's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're because they're just, they never understood show business as an expression of their interior selves. They were never permitted to... They were never allowed to. I mean, the Beatles certainly are, always did. The Stones always did. But these guys never regarded it that anyone wanted to know who they were, and their father never let them write or perform personal music. So there, there's always something plastic about them. But they are putting out. They are not. They never mailed it in, and they never coasted on their success either. Absolutely. And we already talked about Andy Gibbs, so I don't think we need to go back. But I just want to remind listeners that in this context of incredibly massive success, they launched the career of their youngest brother, Andy Gibb. He's 
singing and performing songs written by his older brother Barry, produced and co-produced by his older brother Barry. And so it's an immense amount of success for the family through this whole era. And, you know, in a very decadent era, this is absolutely the peak of disco hedonism, cocaine, mountains of cocaine. I'm not saying the Bee Gees were snorting at all, but they've never denied that they that they went beyond dabbling. You know, but it seems like you've got a great part in your book when you talk about Andy Gibb's downfall and contrast him with Barry Gibb and, and describe Barry Gibb as somebody who basically was able to take it all, everything that was offered, the drugs, the money, the cars, the success, chew it up and just keep going. Yeah, he... Barry is indestructible. I mean, I saw what was billed as Barry Gibbs' first ever solo show. And so I think this was 2011 or 2010. And yeah, sure, he doesn't have a five octave range anymore, but he was still putting it out, still delivering. You know, 6,000 people in the house standing on their chairs going berserk. And he, he had the wind. He could still sing it. And then he did a tour. The, the Bee Gees like to describe themselves as, um, if I remember right, it was pilly, pissy, and potty, meaning that um, <laughs> Robin was a serious pillhead. He was a major speed freak. And Morris was an alcoholic until he got clean. And once he got clean, he stayed clean. And Barry always liked weed. Now, where Coke intertwines through all that, I don't know, but as you say, there was a lot of it around, but um, Morris's alcoholism really undid him until his wife insisted he get clean, and he really rebounded from that. And Robin's pill addiction was very, very hard on his health as well. But look at Barry now. Barry's still indestructible. Absolutely, and all three of the younger brothers have passed, and Andy was probably the one who who did the most cocaine, and, and you know it certainly contributed, or it's believed to have contributed to his early death uh, from heart disease. And after the Spirits Having Fun tour, they take a step back, and, and I, I don't know if they consciously realized that they were overexposed, but they go into songwriting and production in a big way. And like I said, I think that they invented this entire strain that the Poptimists are so elated about of post-rock pop. And let's hear uh, a duet between Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb called Guilty. It's gotta be And that's Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb doing Guilty. And, you know, if you listen, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's amazing. If you listen to her career going back, you know, she comes out in 63, 64, right there with Dylan and the Beatles and is immensely successful, but she's doing musicals and Marvin Hamlish songs. And it's really hard to find anything by her that clicks with, you know, if you put her work on a sampler of her contemporaries at any point from 1963 to 1979, she's going to stick out like a sore thumb, no matter what you think. Yeah. And, and when you hear her with Barry Gibb, boom, suddenly she's, she's part of the zeitgeist. It's incredible. I can never stand her mostly because of her choice of material and thought her, I never liked her. (laughs) 
And I never listened to the song Guilty until I was writing the book, but you drop the needle and in 30 seconds you're going, this is a great pop song. Love it or hate it, you know, kowtow. This is a great piece of pop. Yeah, absolutely. And he goes on to replicate this with Kenny Rogers and Diana Ross and, and Dolly Parton gets sucked into the orbit. And and there was a period there from 80 to 83, 84, where between Barry Gibb and Lionel Richie, they have created a whole new genre of post-disco pop that lives on to this day. And at the time, I absolutely hated it. I, I can remember- yeah, Me too pushing a broom in a garage and listening, you know, islands in the stream would come on or something like that. And you just wanted to murder everybody that was responsible. But <laughs> I have to go back and, and acknowledge and give respect that this was immaculate pop craftsmanship and it did what it was supposed to do. Uh, islands in the stream is another song I refused to listen to ever. And I never played it through in its entirety until I was researching the book. And exactly the same thing, nodding my head, tapping my foot. Wow, he really understood this singer. He understood what they needed. He understood how to, how to produce it. Of course, this was a number one. How could it not be? Yeah, and the number one was Legs. I mean, that is a song you could not escape for the rest of the decade. And <laughs> and <laughs> and, you know, and the whole uh, Dion, you know, Dion Warwick is another right. beneficiary of his work. And that whole crew that goes on to put put out and i'm blanking on the name of the big charity pop song they did in the mid 80s but that whole world i really think you can argue comes from barry gibb and if you're going to give anybody else credit for it it would be lionel richie you know who had a very similar career where he's you know the commodores are a very respectable funk group with some great pop songs but also some serious funk but he takes this turn into pop around the time barry gibb gets into it and the two of them were just you know, a lethal combination that utterly you know, in the in the in the sixties there was that clear delineation between pop and rock, you know, and nobody who loved Iron Butterfly was gonna say they also loved the bright elusive butterfly of love. You know, those are just in two different absolute universes, absolutely opposed. And then somehow very slowly pop and rock began to entwine. And as you're describing it in a really extraordinary piece of you know, cultural mutual assimilation, funk and pop began to began to intertwine. And if you think about, you know, Parliament Funkadelic or the Gap Band or the early Commodores, any of these hardcore funk bands, the idea that that would mutate into funk pop, it was inconceivable. And yet they pulled it off and, and Barry yeah, they was found each other. an enormous part of it. So I, I think anything else you want to add to this? Because I think we've covered all the points that I had going in. And I just I want to thank you for having written this book because it really helped me crystallize my thinking about the Bee Gees. And I had struggled with them. Uh, you know, how to process them, the two different careers or three, really. I, I was basically oblivious to Barry Gibbs work as a pop producer. Me but too. He's definitely, he's the Max Martin of his era, you know, there, there's, or the Barry Gordy of his era. I mean, there's nobody you can put up against him uh, for that era of pop. And, you know, the Poptimists and Carl Wilson and other critics who have forced everybody to reevaluate how we, how we gauge music. I mean, this is, this is the Poptimist stuff. I mean, that, you know, and if you go back and listen to it, like you say, Guilty, for example, holds up really, really well. So, well, if I, had to, if I was to say anything in closing, it's what you, it's what you just said, and that is reevaluate. And that is, 
I found dipping back into the Bee Gees from each era to be really illuminating. And I would say people who have dismissed them or don't think about them would gain a lot from an afternoon of just running through the Bee Gees catalog and listening to all their different sounds and discovering how rich and varied they are and how much worth there is in their music. Absolutely. And thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, it's my Dave, pleasure. Always Dave, love it. David A. Meyer is the guest, and the book is The Bee Gees, The Biography. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Alan Dr. Lick Slutsky joins Nate to discuss his book, Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The Bee Gees, The Biography, is published by DeCapo Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.